Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. My guest today is Meg Keneally, and I'm really excited because this is the first time I've interviewed anyone who is actually at this moment in Sydney, Australia, while I am in the Eastern United States. Meg is the best-selling in Australia author of Fled, a wonderful novel that I read and which was the reason I contacted her to come on to this podcast. Welcome, Meg. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, first of all, talk to me a little bit about, before we get to your book, which we'll get to really soon, about what's going on there, how life is in Sydney. It's not too bad in terms of restrictions. We had, I think, four cases yesterday. So, you know, the measures they've put in place here are working, but it's, so we're not locked down or anything, but it's an unusual time to be publishing a book, certainly, because there are no library talks, no writers' festivals, no bookshop events. Our borders are closed. No one Mm. is coming in and uh, no one is going out, um, which is very tragic for a lot of people. But from a publishing perspective, it means airport bookshops not available as a as a way to to sell books so it is an unusual time i've got a new novel out in australia which isn't out in the us yet and all of my events have been on zoom and skype and so on and so forth which is very different to when fled came out when i was traveling for three months but still we are i'm grateful to be healthy I'm grateful to be employed. That puts me in a much better position than a great many people around the world. So we uh, we cling on to the positives. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. I have. It's very different from the way things are here right now, as you know. But we just have to do our best and hope things will get back to normal. But we yeah. are lucky as writers and, and me. I'm also a book coach that I was working from home anyway. So I have been Mm. gainfully employed throughout, which is very fortunate. Yes, likewise. Likewise. And I think it's easier for us who have always worked from home uh, because I know a lot of friends who typically work in an office and when we were locked down, they had a a lot of trouble adjusting Mm -hmm. because they didn't have those hacks that those of us who do work from home have developed over the years to put a demarcation between work and non-work. So what are your hacks for that? I'm just curious. Look, the number one thing I always say to anyone who who's newly working from home is, for God's sake, get dressed. <laughs> don't go to work in your pajamas. And I have my little routines and rituals that I do, which subconsciously tell me that it's time for work now, or it's time to switch off now. And also my children are very good at letting me know when, <laughs> when I should stand up from the computer as well. Yeah. How old are your children? They're 20 and 18. My daughter's doing her final year of high school. And it's been a rough time for high school, mm. final year high school students here. It certainly has. Mm. It's not an ideal situation for them at all. But they're back in class learning. So that's good. Yeah, that's excellent. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's get to the juicy stuff. Your book. Okay. 
I really, I had, I loved that book so much. Mm. The, the thing is, there aren't that many that are on the market in the US that I know of really good historical novels that have to do with Australia and with that particular part of the history. Can you mm. talk a little bit about that and how, how you came to write that particular book about the woman convicts and that one woman? How did that come about? Australia, of course, was colonised uh, in 1788 as essentially a prison. You guys got all antsy about taxes and left, decided not to be a colony anymore. And as a result <laughs> of that, um, mm. that Britain needed to find somewhere else to store its human refuse as they saw as they saw yeah, them, yeah. and Australia was it. And in fact, some of my ancestors came to Australia as convicts too. On the 26th of January 1788, the first fleet arrived in Sydney Cove. There were 1,500 people, and that that was the day Australia was colonised to the great det detriment of First Nations people here, of course. But there was one particular convict that who has always fascinated me. Her name was Mary Bryant. Uh, she was a Cornish woman. She was a highway woman. She was transported for highway robbery. She was lucky not to hang. And she masterminded the most daring escape in Australia's history. She plotted to steal the governor's cutter, a open boat which is about six metres long, and I'm sorry, I don't know how many feet that is. That's uh, okay. It's, it's probably a little over six yards, so 30, 40 feet probably about. Yeah. yeah. So not a huge boat, not a covered boat. It had a sail but that was a bit, and some oars and that was about it. So she came up with this plan to steal this boat and she uh, loaded her two children into it and her husband and several other convicts and sailed it all the way uh, to West Timor near Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony at the time. And that was a journey of, again, I'm sorry, I don't know the Imperial, but around 5,000 kilometres. Quite That's a lot more than 5,000 miles. Let's just put it that No, wait, it's less than 5,000 miles. Yeah. Sorry, backwards, yeah. But yeah. it's still in the it's, many thousands of miles for sure, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, probably a, a smidge more than 3,000 miles. Yeah, that sounds... A long way. And when they arrived in West Timor, they passed themselves off as shipwreck survivors, the crew of a, of a whaler, to explain Mary's presence there because it wasn't uncommon for whalers to have their wives and children aboard. And they, they lived in West Timor as a guest of the Dutch governor for a couple of months before they were betrayed dun, 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 and recaptured yeah. and various other, other things, various other adventures ensued from there, yeah. including several tragedies. Yes, we won't give any spoilers because I want lots of people to read your book, but it is so okay. exciting. And, and just your sense of, I was like, practically gripping the edges of my chair reading it because of because I was like no and worried about the kids and worried about yeah. all of that stuff and and she's an amazing character a really incredible character and you follow her right the way through and it's a very satisfying ending which I'm not going to tell anyone about <laughs> so. thank you so, so this isn't the first book you've written though that's been published right no I uh, with my father I've written a series of four Australian colonial murder mysteries. Who done it? Featuring gentleman convict detective, and I've got a new book out in Australia. I don't know yet when it's going to be out in the um, 
in the US, uh, but more historical fiction. And at the moment, I'm writing a book based on a woman whose story I found when I was researching something else. Her name was Marau Ta'aro Salman, and she was the last queen of Tahiti. Wow. Wow. Uh, and she has an extraordinary story, an extraordinary life. And when I found, and what's amazing is I come across these stories of all these incredible women in history that are untold. We don't value women's history yeah. as much as we should. And we I'm got involved. written out of history because yeah, the men absolutely. were writing the history books. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in many cases, like Mary Bryant, who was the inspiration for my character, Jenny, in Pled, um, women were illiterate. There there was seen to be no point in really educating women in various parts of society Mm -hmm. uh, during that time. We don't know what happened to Mary Bryant in the how she died. She disappears from history at a ripe old age of 29. But there's no evidence that she ever learned to read or write, which to me would be like losing a sense, you know. Yeah. I can't even imagine existing in a world where I couldn't do that. I know. I know. It would be like having a limb. Yes, but that is a very Western perspective, perhaps, That's too, true. which is interesting. We don't even, I don't think we always realize what cultural influences are just seeped mm. into us because of where we live, who we are, and all that kind of thing. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is a very Western perspective and also a very modern perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's, I find, one of the challenges of writing historical fiction is to get out of your own way, uh, to leave your modern sensibilities at the door. Yeah. Because as a well-known historian here says, and I absolutely agree, the people of the past are not us in funny clothes. No. They're different. And hacking into that sensibility, that mindset, is something you absolutely have to do as a historical fiction writer. And it's extraordinarily hard because it means sometimes viewing the world through a lens that you find abhorrent. Yes. Interesting. I just had a conversation on, or just a Twitter sort of exchange with a writer who was all worried about her historical character using racial slurs. Mm. And I said, if that's the way that character would have spoken at the time, people have to, it's got to be historical. You can't have them, say, referring to them as African-Americans in the 19th century, for instance. I don't know what the slur was she was talking about, slurs where she was talking about, but, and here we have this, these sensitivity readers. Have you had that in Australia yet? Officially have them. And I was desperately searching for one with fled because of obviously there are Indigenous characters in FLED and I was keenly aware that I was writing about a very painful part of history which is still reverberating today for our First Nations (laughs) people who still have deficits in terms of incarceration, education, etc. There's still a shameful gap between outcomes for Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians and that started on the day I wrote about on the 26th of January, 1788. So I was very worried about that. I was eventually able to find an Aboriginal elder who read the book for me. But Mm -hmm. I'm aware of the sensitivity readers you guys have in the States, and I think it's a wonderful thing. I wish we had it here. Yeah, yeah, it is good. And and there's a lot of, you were fine because you were really in the mind of a European woman, a woman Mm -hmm. who who had the same heritage as you. and, And obviously her view of the world was from with that lens 
I think where people get into trouble <clears throat> here is, and, and it's, I'm of sort of two minds. There's this thing like you called uh, cultural appropriation. Like, mm, yeah. like a white person shouldn't be writing as a black person or an indigenous person and that. And, and I agree that those people should have their own stories to tell, that we should all have our own stories to tell. But it worries me a little bit, and I'm going to be way off base here, that we're putting limits on our imagination. Mm, and yeah, you know, it's it's a really tough call. Yeah, a really tough call because yeah, it's something I struggle with a lot. Because if you're writing Australian colonial historical fiction, you are writing about Indigenous people as well. <laughs> and yeah, it's a thorny one. I read recently about a YA author who pulled her book from publication really? over cultural appropriation concerns. Yeah. Yeah. So, I heard yeah. A, 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 a black woman writer said something about that what we have to learn to distinguish between is cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, which I thought yeah. was really astute because I think there's a way to do it. And for instance, I don't know if you've read Sue Monk Kidd's book, The Invention of Wings. No, I haven't. Oh, it's wonderful. I actually oh, listened I to it. it. She's fabulous anyway. But it's she has two different points of view set in the American South during in, I'm not going to remember where, maybe Savannah or someplace during the 19th century and the historical, the, there's a woman who's the daughter of a plantation owner and she becomes an abolitionist, but the other voice is an enslaved uh, girl who she befriends on the thing, but she's really in that voice and they're both. And I thought, I know that she's not a black woman writing, but it was very convincing to me. I'd love to have another perspective on it, but she mm. was able to do that. And it wouldn't have been the same book if she didn't feel she could. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a tough issue. And I think that's going to, you know, continue to grow in importance as an issue. And it's something that I'm struggling with at the moment for this book about the last queen of Tahiti, who was a Polynesian woman. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very, being very cautious about the way I do it, or whether I should be still asking yeah. myself that question. So yeah. um, it's yeah, it's a tough one because at the same time, I really love telling stories about the forgotten women of history, mm-hmm. and some of those women are not going to have the same cultural background as the people who write about them. And it is a question I think absolutely everybody needs to ask themselves. And like I said, one I'm struggling with at the moment. Yeah, no, I can fully understand that. So yeah, how did you start, get interested in start doing historical fiction? My dad is a writer and Mm -hmm. he dragged me around historical sites when I was a kid when I would have rather been watching um, TV, watching cartoons. And also when I was about eight or nine, we we lived in Connecticut and mum and dad took us out of school for six months and we drove around the US in a van. Uh, So I was van schooled um, (laughs) for six months. I love that. Yeah, it was great. This was the days long before iPads and so forth. So parents had to be very creative on long road trips uh, to stop their children murdering one another in the back seat. And part of the way 
dad did that was by spinning yarns. And he's written over 50 books. Uh, probably his best known one there is Shimba's List. Yes. Um, and uh, he would just tell a story after story to keep us quiet. One of the stories he told me was the story of Mary Bryant. It was such an incredible story. I assumed he was just making it up because <laughs> he'd tell us stories about talking volcanoes and all sorts of things. And when I, when I came back to it as an adult, I was surprised to find he hadn't embellished it much at all. It was such an extraordinary <laughs> yarn. But isn't that the case often? You go and look at history and stuff happens. I, I, for whatever reasons, I've been looking at the French Revolution and all these various people involved. And you get to this little enclave around the uh, Duc d'Orléans, Duc de Chartres. And my God, it's like a modern day soap opera, what was going on. If you tried to make it up, you couldn't do it. Like he, his ex-lover was his children's governess and he had her name tattooed on his arm. You know, I mean, it's just like... Yeah. <laughs> I know. There is so much in history that you couldn't make up if you tried. And mm -hmm. if I tried to make up Mary Bryant's story, I'd probably be accused of being a fantasist. Yeah. And there's uh, another story that I want to write uh, soon about Australia's first female pirates <gasps> who have never been, who haven't been much written about as well. These two women were being shipped from uh, Sydney to Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania. And they were on a ship called the Venus, which was ironic because the captain was a sexual sadist who had a different convict woman flogged every night for his own entertainment. Mm. And so these two women plotted and with the help of the first mate and another convict plotted and carried out a mutiny seized the ship, sailed it to New Zealand and became the first two European women in New Zealand. And that all happens. I mean, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, I, a couple of other books. Have you, did you read The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton? No, I haven't. I, had, I have it on my teetering TBR pile though. Yeah, it's a really wonderful book, but that I think might be the only other one, like, aside from, of course, The Mysteries by Niall Marsh. Everybody's yeah. read those. Yeah. But the other thing that's really interesting, and I read your book first <laughs> and loved it. Have, did you know about Christina Baker Klein's The Exiles? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> this is also about women convicts going to Van Diemen's Land, but in 1840. And it's based oh, on right. a... Yeah, I know. It's so... I would like... What is there out in the universe that has made two amazing writers write about the same, not the same, <laughs> but a similar story? It's very different in a lot of ways. And I actually interviewed her for my podcast, so you can hear all about it if you go and listen oh, to it. Right. But right. yeah, no, it's just, and, and I think I'm encouraged by that, really, because I think that, that opening up those kinds of subjects is, mm. can be nothing but good in terms of getting us away from our rut of the kinds of historical fiction that, that you know, where there's, they, they get hold of one period or one thing and they just, mm. like the Tudors or something. Here yeah. it's World War II at the moment. <laughs> it's funny how it goes through trends. We had a, a French Revolution trend a couple of years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's funny you mention the, the Tudors and British medieval history because my first, the first historical fiction book for grown-ups that I read when I was about, I think, 14 or 15 was The Sun in Splendour by Sharon Penman, which oh, is about right. the Wars of the Roses. And yeah. she's still one of my favourite historical fiction writers. Yeah. But I came to, she's obviously writing from the perspective of the protagonists who are 
kings and queens or wanting to be kings and queens. But I actually came to the conclusion that I personally find stories more interested, interesting when they're told by people who are not the lords and ladies, who are not the rulers, who are not the masters of the universe, but the people who are on the periphery a little bit because you get a different perspective there. You get more nuance. One example is uh, Robert Harris's books on Cicero which are told from the perspective of his slave Tiro, which are really wonderful books. And, of course, Hilary Mantel's books, Wolf oh, Hall and Bring Up the Bodies fabulous. and the Mirror and the Light. Yeah. yeah. And Thomas Cromwell. We learn more about Henry VIII through Cromwell than we ever could through Henry VIII. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And those peripheral people, as you say, mm. are so interesting. And And I always find that more interesting as well, although I have actually read plenty of king and queen books, <laughs> so to yeah. speak. But, yes, um, <laughs> king and queen books, what could I say? <laughs> oh, but, I, I mean, people like Sharon Penman and Philippa Gregory are amazing. Yeah, and my friend Anne Easter Smith, have you read any of hers? Yeah. yeah she, I interviewed her as well. <laughs> so. oh, excellent, I'll have a listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she's a lovely person. And um, it, it was your education in history or did you have a different kind of, when you went to university or whatever? Well, you know how the children of people in the professions often rebel by going into the arts? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the children of people in the arts often rebel by going in the <laughs> other direction. Um, so I did, I did law at university and with, with, with history as a minor and I didn't end up graduating law. I, I, I left to take up a job in communications and in journalism because I decided that I actually didn't want to be a lawyer after all. But I think if I had my time again, I would do a history degree, definitely. Definitely. Um, uh, although history is something that you can study on your own. Yes, that's true. You can be an autodidact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which is lucky for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're working on this other book. Do you have any other sort of projects that you're thinking about doing in the near future or are you, you're one book at a time kind of woman? I'm really juggling a couple of different ideas and going down various research rabbit holes. And I love going down research rabbit holes. You often find some extraordinary things at the bottom of them. Yeah. <laughs> But at the moment, I'm, I'm really focusing on getting this book written, The Last Queen, it's going to be called, and learning French because I have to for research purposes. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, did, you know, I did no literature at all, except I, the only literature I did in college was French. And I, for yeah. some reason, I just decided. So I'm fortunate in that I can read French almost as quickly as I can read English. Mm. But which has helped a lot because so much of my books take place in Paris and Vienna. Mm. And I, when I went to graduate school, I had to do reading exams or in German, French, and Italian. Wow! So it really stands me in good stead. It really does because I can tackle some sources that a lot of people can't. Yeah. Yeah, and this is what I'm wrestling with at the moment. I can read French, but it's a slow process. Yeah. But I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You will, I'm I've, sure, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. What helps most is I find I've found some people online, language exchange buddies. So oh. I've met a couple of really nice French women who are at the same level in English as I am in French. Huh. And we talk on Skype once a week 
and I speak French and they speak English and we correct each other. What a fabulous idea. Yeah. It's really useful. You learn so much more by speaking than you do by, yeah. Yeah. you know, traditional and methods of learning, I find. Yeah. And my speaking goes right downhill if I haven't been there for a long time, too. I get up there to go, boop, boop, <laughs> try to communicate. <laughs> yeah, I know. I always sound so much better in my head. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> I sound wonderful in my head, and then I open my mouth and the words straggle out. Stagger out like drunks. (laughs) I know, I know. The most upsetting thing to me was, and my French was pretty decent. I knew a lot. It just, whatever, is to to talk to someone in Paris in French and have them answer me in English. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people, a lot of language learners talk about being Englished. And people Uh, I know who visit France are so, so I have a friend who was so thrilled the first time she went to France and she wasn't Englished. She saw oh, yeah, that as, yeah. a, as an indication that she'd made it. You know? Yeah, yeah. It also depends on where you are. In the south mm. of France, it's, it's where we were in the more rural parts. didn't happen as much. Yeah, yeah no, it's a, it's a, the, the grammar is diabolical. Uh, diabolically yeah. complicated, I find. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm English kidding. grammar is pretty hard. English grammar yeah. is really hard. And, and German grammar, too. Yeah. So talking about research, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, because you have to love research to be a historical novelist. You can't like Mm. not like doing it. What kind of resources have you had? Do you have obviously have archival things? Do you have a national library with documents Mm. and things that you went to look at? Yeah, we've got the State Library of New South Wales and the National Library of Australia hold a lot of information. I was really grateful to a man called Dr. Tim Causer from University College London because he is a Jeremy Bentham scholar and he found in Bentham's papers the only surviving journal from one of the escapees on that boat, which is like gold dust. And he interpreted it. And he wrote a little book about it and he put it online for free. And anyway, it's called, <clears throat> pardon me, anyone who's interested can go to the University College London website and download the Memorandums of James Martin, it's called. He was one of the one of the convicts in the boat. And without that whole 69 days between the escapees leaving Sydney and arriving in West Timor would be a black hole. We wouldn't know <sighs> anything about it. Thanks to that, we know that, for example, the party got blown off course by this tremendous, ferocious storm which lasted for three weeks. And can you imagine being in a small boat with your children tied to a bench, going through a three-week storm with waves that are eight metres high in some instances? It's just, it it beggars belief. And when that storm cleared, the land was gone. And they had no idea where they were. And then they came across these little islands and they put ashore on one Mm -hmm. and found turtles. And that means that they were the first Europeans to discover the islands of the Great Barrier Reef. Wow. I thought that's what it was. When I got to that, I thought, I wonder if that's the Great Barrier Reef. It is, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, The island where they put ashore and find the turtles is called Lady Elliot Island. Uh-huh. And they they stopped at various other points along the way as well. We have a town a little to the north of Sydney called Newcastle, which is a mining town. And when the escapees put in there to get water, they mentioned that they found these black rocks which burned very well. So they discovered coal 
um, uh, in in Newcastle. Yeah. And that's like bringing coals to Newcastle, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't have to; it was already there. Right. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, interesting that we have a that our mining town is named after the one in England. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. yeah. So without that. Those sorts of primary sources, primary sources are my absolute favourite mm-hmm. because it does let you get a sense of the attitudes of the time and importantly the language as well yes. of the time, the way people spoke, which is so important to creating an authentic narrative. I was fortunate as well in that the voyage to New South Wales was as fascinating to people in England at the time as a voyage to Mars would be now. And it was like going to Mars. Nobody knew what, what, what life was going to be like. It was a journey of the better part of a year. And once they got there, there was, they were so cut off from everything. I don't think it's possible to overstate how isolating that was, how bereft they must have felt when they arrived there, knowing how far they were from, from home. And many of the people on the first week, many of the convicts, had never travelled more than a couple of miles from their own village had never seen the ocean. So you've got these people from a very insular society who are all of a sudden catapulted to the other side of the world. And as a result of the fascination with the whole enterprise, a lot of the officers of the First Fleet had publishing deals. So they wrote oh. memoirs and sent them back <laughs> and they were published. So I have I can I can turn to my bookshelf now and from here I can see six no seven memoirs of people who were on the first fleet. So that was, you know, really important. But, of course, you're only getting one perspective from those. The women. Not from the women. women. No, I did find some letters written by women, female convicts back to to England at the time. But there's no... The the female record is very sparse, and particularly as people like Mary Bryant were were illiterate. But where you can find a primary source, it's really exciting, you know, really vital. Yeah, and I what actually has been an incredible boon, especially when we're limited and when we can travel, is how much Mm. how many primary sources you can actually find digitized on the web. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a fantastic, if anyone's ever doing any research into Australian history, the National Library of Australia has a website called Trove, which has basically digitised every newspaper article ever written in Australia's history, which is, I've found tremendously useful, not so much for research around the first fleet, but a lot of uh, the stuff that I've written that's said a little bit later in the 1820s, I've relied very heavily on newspaper articles of the time because not only do they tell you what happened, but they give you an insight into the attitudes that people held and into the language that they used. Yeah. So that's an incredibly useful re- resource as well. And there's a site called Gutenberg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. A lot yeah. of stuff. I found on Gutenberg, I found a book called Settlers and Convicts, which was written in 1847, which is essentially a lonely planet guide to colonial Sydney, (laughs) uh, which was... (laughs) I love that. That's so cool. I was so thrilled because at the uh, the time in one of these murder mysteries, I was looking for a seedy dive bar for one of my characters to meet a contact in. And I read about this 
Shabin, uh, this illegal drinking house near the harbour. And the writer of this book said that he went in there and he described the greasy tables and the benches jutting out and the glasses and pipes on the table and the dice games going on. And the fact that there was one constable outside, but nobody was too worried because the rest of them were inside drinking when they should have probably been <laughs> arresting the, the publican. And they had a barbershop pole outside so that they could say, oh, officer, no, we're not an illegal drinking den. As you can see, we're a barbershop. But they didn't, they didn't really have to do that because, as I said, most of the constables were inside yeah. drinking the illegal rum. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I don't want to keep you too long, but this has been oh, okay. an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm really, really, really happy that you agreed to come on here. Is there anything I've not asked you that you would like to say or talk about your books or your writing or anything? No, not that I can, not that I can think of. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, Meg, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been really oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's lovely a, to talk to you. Yeah. When things, whatever, when things, people can travel again. If you ever come to the states, you ha you have to. We have to get together. We'll have to do that. Oh, or that, if that, I go that, to Australia, which is less likely, I'm afraid, but still. <laughs> but yes, you know where I am. I was actually on a panel last year at the Brisbane Writers' Festival with an American writer called Anne Weisgarber. Um, oh, yeah, I know, I know her, yeah. Yeah, she's mm -hmm. lovely. She's lovely. Yeah. We've had some email correspondence, and I love the glove maker. Um, yeah. I can see it on my shelf right now, actually. I bought a copy and got her to sign it because I'm a bit of a fangirl when it comes to writers. So oh, whenever too. I'm on a panel with someone, I yeah. never miss the opportunity to get a signed copy. Yeah, I totally <laughs> value my signed copies. I mean, that's like my little treasure chest of things. But yes. yeah. Listen, I really, we could just talk for hours, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk again. We will talk yes, again. Absolutely. When, Please do keep in touch. Yes. When, you, when your next book is available in the States and after I've read it, then I'll reach out to you again and we'll do this again about okay. that book. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. That sounds great. Right. Thank you so much. So wonderful to talk to you. And, yeah, lovely um, talking to you as well. And, and stay hello healthy. from Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Bye from Friday afternoon. <laughs> anyway, okay. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time. <laughs>